0: This is Behind the Curtain with L.A. Opera, featuring a conversation between Brian Lortzen and Beth Morrison, recorded in August 2018.
1: On this edition of the podcast, opera producer Beth Morrison on the relationship between standard repertoire and new work.
0: One isn't better than the other. And even if the person who comes to Dog Days never goes to the Dorothy Chandler to see La Bohème, it really doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that we're creating interest and excitement in this art form for the future, which involves standard repertoire and involves new work.
1: We'll talk about what led Morrison to create her company, Beth Morrison Projects, the works they're presenting this season at LA Opera, and how BMP and LA Opera formed an artistic partnership.
0: So, the relationship with LA Opera started four years ago, although the planning, I guess, started probably almost six years ago now, with a phone call, a cold call from Christopher Kelch to my office in New York and, you know, my assistant said, you know, Christopher Kelch from LA Opera is on the phone, and I was like, hmm, we'd never met, and I uh, got on the phone with him, and he straight out said, you know, I want to bring you to Los Angeles to talk about your projects and to talk about us presenting your work. And I was like, great, (laughs) let's do it. Um, And the interesting thing is that the previous two years before that call, or maybe the previous year. I had come out to LA um, to do Love Fail, which was David Lang's piece that we did in 2012 um, with UCLA Live at that point. And I just like fell in love with Los Angeles during that, that experience and then started coming out on a regular basis on my own, just trying to like start to understand the landscape out here in the performing arts, who's doing what. Um, At the same time, my friend Yuval Sharon was just moving out here to start his company, The Industry. So I stayed with him and, you know, was able to kind of through his eyes as well, get a little bit of an understanding of uh, what is happening out here in our field. Um, So the call from Christopher was really this kind of wonderful synergistic thing that happened because I was looking for a way to bring the projects out here and felt a real call to be in Los Angeles. So anyway, I came out and we met and he basically said, we wanna present two of your projects a year and um, on an ongoing basis. And so that was the beginning of the partnership. It came, I think, originally through his very keen interest in Missy Mazzoli. Um, and a uh, song from the uproar, and then he sort of saw okay that I had produced that. Then he started kind of seeing like all of the other things that he found really interesting in new work I was also producing, and so that's how he tells it is the reason that he reached out to me hmm. um, was that I was working with this um, cadre of young very cool and progressive composers um, that Christopher also was interested in. So that's how it started. Um, We've now done, I think, seven projects together um, and we've got two planned for the fall. Um, the relationship with LA Opera anchors all of our time out here in Los Angeles, but that we are also working with other LA institutions. So Mm. we have partnerships that are project-based as opposed to a sort of more formal partnership that LA Opera um, and I have, which is kind of an ongoing thing. So we've worked with the LA Phil, we've worked with Center Theater Group, um, some others as well. So um, it's been really fun to be out here in lots of different ways. But the partnership with LA Opera is the most important partnership out here and pretty, pretty much the most important partnership in the life of my company. Mm. Um, It really gives us a reason to be here. And if I could be here full time, I would. uh, But it's, it's not possible, (laughs) given that we're, uh, I have 10 people working for me back in New York, so. (laughs) Um,
1: Maybe they don't feel quite similarly about LA as you do. No,
0: everybody loves it, (laughs) and uh, when we are out here with the projects, you know, the production manager, the associate producer, the executive director of my company all come out, Um, and so everybody loves to be here, and, um, you know, I think it's now become like a perk of working for BMP, (laughs) which is that you have this LA connection.
1: Mm -hmm. What was um, the city like artistically um, when you first set foot in it, thinking from a professional production standpoint, and how has the the city changed? Because it feels like the scene here is, I don't know if it's more fluid than other places, but Mm -hmm. it just feels like it changes a lot from year to year
0: yeah I mean, I think, in terms of like the non profit performing arts world and um where opera sits within that here in l a it feels like there's been a lot of um you know, this kind of renaissance in a way, or maybe it's not even a renaissance. Maybe it's just a beginning. I don't know, but um, but it feels like there's a lot of work that is happening here that is incredibly interesting. Um, I think Christopher Kelsch on the opera side of things is a complete visionary and has the idea for how to take LA opera into the 21st century as a leading company and what that means in, um, in the field um, as, a, as a leader, as an example of what you can do as an A-level company. Um, and uh, so working with him has been really great because we really jive on a lot of um, a lot of things. And um, LA Opera through Off Grand and also their um, now main stage initiative for New Works um, has really, Uh, I think become a leading example in the field. So that's been really great to see Christopher um, kind of really stretch what this company has been um, through through his his initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the LA Phil occupies a really important space here in LA with all that they do and their commitment to new work and um, their support of lots of different young LA-based artists. Um, obviously, Yuval, with his company, has created something. Um, you know, the projects are uh, always very progressive, and, um, and I think that, you know, through the efforts of... Um, BMP, LA Opera, LA Phil, um, with Yuval with Long Beach, um, that LA actually has become a place for opera and a place for new opera. Um, and I think that um, you know, I spend you know half my time in New York City and uh, I feel like every fifth artist that I encounter is moving to Los Angeles. Mm. Um, so there's definitely this kind of, pull out here. Um, There have been some incredible composers that have moved out here, Ted Hearn, Andrew Norman, um, others. But that sort of space that has been occupied by New York, where really New York has always been looked at as the place for cutting edge art, you know, cutting edge music, whatever, um, that it's really shifting, I think, um, Mm. that Los Angeles has really come into the arena in a very strong way, and is really giving New York a run for his money
1: <laughs> that's interesting because I always wonder like when um when we talk about you know the the difference between the two scenes yeah. um in New York and los angeles and then then we we do talk about the composers that have moved west um we talk about um, artists who have really found their voice here on the west coast um and I always wonder like is it It seems to me that it's not so much that New York is losing too much of anything. It's just that the scene here is growing and adding important voices.
0: I think New York is losing something, honestly. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I think that New York, um, I mean, I love New York and there's uh, only one New York in the world and it will always hold that place, but... um, But I do feel like the city has become very difficult for artists to live in. It's extraordinarily expensive. um, And artists just keep getting pushed and pushed further out. Um, You know, there are maybe two. There's like one place in Manhattan that artists really still live, which is like you know, you may as well be living in Connecticut. It's so far away, you know, <laughs> and then everybody's pushed into Brooklyn and now Brooklyn is too expensive and now people are looking at the Bronx and like, you know, eventually there's going to be no place for us. And so I think everybody that I know feels that and feels that pressure um, that it's just hard to have a life in New York because you're just constantly scrambling to pay the rent. Um, and I think until New York really... has an an advocate for artists in the mayor, um, which we really don't, there's been a lot of lip service paid to it, but there has not been any substantive um, change. I think that artists in New York are going to continue to look for other opportunities and other outlets and other places to be. And I think Los Angeles is number one on that list. And I know like for the people in LA, like that's a little bit in some ways bittersweet like i think from the people that i've talked to out here like everybody feels proud of that that it is a destination place now and where artists and musicians want to be but that we're also like you know driving prices up here in la (laughs) now that you know new york has like decided to move here and um and so i know there's a little bit of that tension that exists um for me personally, I feel like I have the best of both worlds. Um, you know, I am able to exist in New York and Los Angeles and really take what's the best part of both cities into both my personal and my professional life. Mm. Um, I have a place out here and, um, you know, I love the Arts District, which is where my, my place is. And and it's, it's really changed my life being out here and really, really very much for the better.
1: Mm. So tell me about your company and um, how it started. Um, basically, if, if someone doesn't know anything about Beth sure. Morrison Projects, um, introduce us to your company.
0: Yeah, sure. Of course. So I started as an opera singer. Um, people who are listening may think, like, why does she sound like that? Because I have a cold now and I've had <laughs> laryngitis. But anyway, um, I did start as a singer. I did two degrees in classical voice, ended up as a, started as a soprano, ended up as a mezzo, and uh, pretty Pretty soon after my first graduate degree, I started working in arts administration for the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. I was teaching out there. It's a program for very gifted high school musicians. It's part of Boston Symphony Orchestra's Tanglewood Festival in Massachusetts. And it's really, uh, the program really pulls the best of the best of high school students. I'd been there as a student myself. It's really what sent me on the path of being in classical music. Before that, I thought I would wanted to be on Broadway Um, but going to Tanglewood really shifted my focus to classical and once I took the job with the Tanglewood Institute I started getting promoted quite quickly so I was like first like the administrative head of the vocal program then I was the assistant director of the Institute and then at a very young age I got promoted to be the administrative director of the Institute And so that gave me a chance to really see things in a different way, um, being on the other side of things. And so what I realized really quickly was that having a vision for, at that time it was 10 programs and 70 faculty and 350 students um, was like life changing. Because as a singer, you're really just focused on yourself. And there is always, um, I was always a very neurotic singer. And so that aspect of like, having to always worry about your health and having to always like go to bed early and not eat spicy food and not, you know, not, 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 don't do this, don't do that. And just auditioning, which I never could get comfortable with. So I was always, I never felt like I gave an audition that represented me because my nerves just like killed me. So once I started administration, it was like I could channel all my passion for the art form and for um, classical music Into something that wasn't about me. And so that allowed me to really step outside of myself and to really make. Change for people and create experiences for people that were really meaningful. So that really is like that shifted my focus. And I, I worked at the Tanglewood Institute for six years. And um, at the end of that, I was really starting to feel like I was missing my theater roots. I grew up in the theater as a kid. Tanglewood is very educational focused, very classical, classical. <laughs> so I started like looking around in Boston and seeing, you know, a lot of experimental theater in Boston, and. That kind of sparked me because um, I had never seen an opera production to that point that I was interested in. I've, I was bored at every production that I went to. And that's not to say that it was about the music because I think the, the standard repertoire is extraordinary. Um, but the productions weren't doing it for me. And the theater was. And so I just started thinking, like, what would it mean to start a company That took the best of avant garde theater making and put that together with opera, which is my art form and I should love it, but like I feel like it's not. It wasn't doing it for me at that time, and so I, I kind of ruminated on that for about a year, and then finally decided that I wanted to do that and that the, that I didn't know how to do that. Um, so I went back to school. I did a degree in theater management and producing at Yale School of Drama. Got an MFA in that, and while I was there, I really that was really also life-changing and eye-opening for me because i was in contact with um the most extraordinary theater artists of our generation you know so incredible designers and incredible directors and i was seeing probably two or three productions a week while i was at yale and i started to really just you know think that yeah this is it like bringing this kind of artist, this sort of young visionary artist to opera is what the ticket is for me in terms of how I wanted to, to affect the industry. And it was a lofty goal I guess and I think there is a lot of hubris in it and maybe naivete but um, but I, I wanted to change the industry. I wanted to change the art form. I just did. And, and I felt like this art form has the potential to be the most extraordinary art form of any art form. It puts together music. It puts together theater. It puts together text. It puts together dance. Like every single aspect of the arts can happen in opera. So when it's happening in the right way, it can be transcendent. A good example of that is uh Satya Graha, which LA Opera is doing, and it's the Eno production that has also been with The Met by Phelan McDermott and Julian Crouch. It is the most extraordinary production that has ever been created. And that is my favorite opera as well. So for me, like the pinnacle of what this art form can be is this production. Mm. So that's you know, that's something I strive for with the work that I'm doing, but
1: I was already excited for that production, and now I'm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, anyway, yeah, it's like I did three years there, learned so much about theater, built my business plan while I was there for BMP, and learned how to how to run a a nonprofit theater company, which then I translated into opera and put together with another model, which is where I did my fellowship. So my Yale program, you do a semester fellowship at a company outside of New Haven. I did it with Pomegranate Arts, which is um, Philip Glass's producer and Laura Anderson's producer and some others. Um, And I learned from Pomegranate how to tour work Pomegranate toured Einstein on the Beach, Mm -hmm. which came to L.A. Opera. I was there. Yes. Um, So Linda Brumbach and Elisa Riguez run that company, and they have always been mentors to me and people who I think are, you know, they're the good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But their mo- their model was a touring model, a for-profit touring model. So for me, because I was looking to do new work, to work with young artists that didn't have reputations like Philip Glass, um, I knew I was going to need to be able to raise money. So for me, raising money is about asking individuals, asking foundations, government things. So I became a nonprofit, um, and then also paired the touring model with that. So the touring pays for itself in our company. So we capitalize the works, the physical production, the development of the work, the commissioning of the work, and that's our, our part of it. Then when we tour it to a presenter like LA Opera, they pay for what it means to run the piece for the week. So it's this wonderful partnership of how to get the work out of New York and out to Los Angeles and out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So BMP tours all over. Um, We tour internationally. This year we've got three shows in Hong Kong and two in Australia. And so we're we're really all over the all over the map, um, which is fun and exciting. But it was, you know, really sort of my time at Yale, my time at Tanglewood really sort of helped me figure out what this company needed to be. And then I just moved to New York in 2005 and started producing. And um, I had met Nico Muley through Pomegranate during my, my fellowship. I moved and in three weeks, I was producing Nico at New York uh, Library Live, which is this wonderful music program that they run um, with his piece, Elements of Style. That piece put Nico on the map. Um, He was 23 at the time. He then like New York Magazine called him out as like one of the best under 30. Like that was really the turning point in his career was that piece. And it was one of my first pieces. So, you know, that was also this wonderful thing to, to, to see that, you know, that could happen. And then from there, I met um, composers like David T. Little, Messi Mazzoli, Judd Greenstein, Paolo Pristini, Ted Hearn. And these are really the leaders of their generation. And at the time, you know, we were all really young. And uh, maybe they were younger than me, but (laughs) we were all really young. And we found each other. And they were interested in doing music theater and opera in a way that their sort of forefathers weren't doing until they were much older and so they needed a producer they were self-producing they were you know trying to make things happen on their own but we came together and realized that we had this like shared vision and that we're like soulmates really and that we we could make something together that was really special and so we've grown each other up honestly over the last 13 years where my company went from being a scrappy company of just me you know one person for the first six years of the company, I didn't pay myself. I was teaching voice at Pace University to support myself. And then slowly, like things started to change and it started to change with press. I started to get a lot of press. And once you get, you know, Wall Street Journal and The Observer and the New York Times doing feature stories, then all of a sudden everything changes and the foundations want to support you and the presenters want to do your work and everything shifted the minute that I started to get that kind of press. Mm.
1: Prism is coming to uh, La Opera this season. Um, is uh, is this the, your first time working with Ellen Reed?
0: I've been working with Ellen on this piece um, for four years. Um, I first encountered uh, her her work, Winter's Child, which is what Prism has actually become. I heard a, a work in progress of it um, or a snippet of it, and I like fell in love with it and uh, met Ellen um, and. in love with her. She's just incredible, amazing energy and vision. And her music has such an incredible, unique voice to it. So we started working on this. And Winter's Child at that time um, had a different libretto, a different librettist. I felt like the piece had a long way to go, but I wanted to showcase Alan's work in a very visible arena. So we did a work in progress of it at my festival prototype, which happens in New York in January. Out of that, Ellen met some people that became very influential and instrumental in her life out here in LA. Through that, she got her Master Carl commission through that, you know, and then it just sort of snowballed. So I knew that the piece wasn't ready to be produced, but I wanted to get Ellen's name and music into the world Um, and so that was the reason that we we kind of jumped in at that point since then we've got a new librettist on board we've been workshopping the piece for the last couple of years um, with our developmental partners ASU um, University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana Lyric Theater and we're now at the place where we're about to head into the actual rehearsal period and tech and world premiere here in Los Angeles which is really exciting and then we'll take it immediately after to my festival in new york prototype and ellen is having an unbelievable year Is <laughs> yeah. i think she's the only composer who in one year has had premieres with la phil la master chorale la chamber orchestra and la opera um, so it's a really exciting moment for her career It's also a really exciting moment, I think, for Los Angeles that these major institutions have gotten behind a young woman composer, I think, says a lot about the city and about where things are headed. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think in one of my... um pieces on KUSC. I, I called her uh, the unofficial composer in residence for the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. Like And we should have that thing, by the way, right? We should have that
0: thing. <laughs> and also, that's awesome. Like, that's right. so great. And like, awesome yeah. to put that together. Um, Yeah, I think she is. And it's how exciting is that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, she's this diminutive, you know, person who looks like she's 12. But she's a 35 year old, incredible mind, incredible talent, you know, and is fierce in every way. And the fact that LA has opened up for her is, Mm -hmm. I think, really incredible.
1: Tell us about the work.
0: So Prism is a psychological drama about a mother and a daughter. There's a trauma that happens um, in the daughter's life. And the mother, from the point of that trauma, then creates a world that they exist in that is really a fantasy world. I don't want to give it away because <laughs> there's there's a big reveal, um, mm-hmm. so I don't want to give it away. But needless to say, it's really about the links that humans can go to to overcome trauma to sweep things under the carpet you know that kind of thing that that we want to exist in a positive place and what what are the lengths that we will go to to do that Mm -hmm. it's moody and it's it has this extraordinary sound world there's this kind of force you'll find out what that is later but there's a sort of force (laughs) outside of their bedroom outside of their door um which is represented by the choir. And um, it's a, it's a small chorus of 16. But the way that Ellen writes for chorus is incredible. And she creates these extraordinary sound worlds through voice. And that's, I think, in this piece, mostly represented through the choir.
1: Mm. There is a, a real visceral quality to her music. Um, and You mentioned her choral writing and just thinking about Dreams of the New World at, yeah. at the Master Chorale. It had that, like, just absolute intensity that just like does something to you physically as as you listen to it.
0: Exactly. And that's you know that's how I felt the first time I listened to her music. It was a visceral response and it's interesting that you know in LA this fall we're doing Soldier Songs by David T. Little, and we're doing Prison by Ellen Reed and the only other composer that I had put on and had that same immediate reaction to was David Mm. Um, when he sent me soldier songs. And it was just this like visceral reaction that I almost like started sweating. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like something, something, there's something important here. And all the composers I work with, I have that experience with and like, they all have unique voices. And if I don't feel that deep connection to them, I don't do the work because these things take i mean like blood sweat and tears i probably make like 25 cents an hour if you actually really <laughs> like looked at all of the work that we put into it but but Ellen absolutely hit that with me and um and it was just like whatever it takes to get this done, like we have to do this, like we have to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um James Dara is directing, he's a wonderful LA based director who's doing a lot in both orchestral worlds and in the opera world. Um his stars really rising and he did Missy Mazzoli's Breaking the Waves, which was a huge success. And uh, Roxy Perkins, who is an LA-based screenwriter mostly, also playwright, is the librettist. Mm. And she has a very unique style. When you look at her libretto, it looks like a a screenplay. Mm. Um, And I actually believe that through this experience, I've I've come to believe that I think where we ought to be looking as a field for librettists is actually screenwriters. Mm. Because what they do is they actually give space for the music to happen. In film, it's for, you know, scenes without words, of which there's a lot in cinema. And I think it's an exciting new channel, actually, for us to look to.
1: That's really interesting because part of the history of this company is using film directors Mm -hmm. as directors for opera productions. Mm but I don't know that anyone's really thought of that.
0: Yeah, nobody's talking about it but me, yeah. but, I th- <laughs> but I'm but i talking about it pretty loudly wherever I can um, and I think there could be a really interesting, you know, partnership to set up like with UCLA or whatever like I, I need to ruminate a little bit more on it mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. about what the right steps would be, but I'm very, very interested in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that playwrights and novelists um, tend to just way overwrite for libretti and poets sometimes don't have have this storytelling ability. So a screenwriter really kind of economizes all of that if you get the right person um, and synthesizes all of those things together in a way that I think feels like the right thing.
1: I love it, I love it. Um, David T. Little and Soldier Songs. Um, I feel like his name is probably less known in Los Angeles than Ellen's is.
0: Um, maybe. I'm not sure. Oh. I I don't think so. Okay. Um, yeah. He We did his Dog Days here right. um, four years ago, and it was a really huge success. Um, David's not an L.A. composer, so Ellen obviously is out here more, and people certainly know her. But I think certainly in the new music community, everybody knows David out here, yeah. um, and his work has really... I mean, he's now writing a commission for the Met. He had premiered a, a huge grand opera, JFK, that's gone to a couple of places in the U.S. and Canada, and his he's really like working at a very um, high arena right now in a, in, a, in that kind of space. Dave is an extraordinary composer and is somebody who I've worked with from the beginning. Um, He gave me Soldier Songs, which had had a concert premiere in 2006. And it was that it was the first time I'd had that experience of just feeling like completely overwhelmed by the music and feeling like I had to. I had to produce this like I had to make it work that time it was I just started my company so I called David and I was like I don't know how we're gonna do this I don't know where the money's gonna come from I don't know where we're gonna do it I don't know how it's gonna happen but like we have to do this and so we really partnered which is how I the beginning of my company that's really how I worked I partnered with the composers and we figured it out together we would do fundraising together we would you know look at like opportunities for venues together so it was a really like strong partnership at the beginning for all those sort of fundamentals. Fast forward now, that's not the case. We do all of our own fundraising. We, you know, do all the venues, all those things. But at the time, I, nobody knew me in New York. I was brand new and I don't have money. I didn't come from money. I had like not two cents to rub together so it was like you know how do we make this happen um so david and i partnered and we just like immediately like were drawn to working to each other like he's in some ways he really is like an artistic soulmate like we just think the same i have a huge love of rock and roll and his background is a rock drummer soldier songs has a lot of rock and roll in it um he's got a lot of like metal influence in it as well and so his sound world just really jived with me and I felt like this is something I have never heard before in opera nobody's writing like this in opera Um, and it felt contemporary and it felt young and it felt like oh this is it Like, this is what I have been looking for. So we, over the course of a couple of years, worked on it. Uh, Actually, Yuval Sharon directed that production. Uh, We now have two productions of the piece. One is Yuval's, and the other is a multimedia staged concert version. Tours very easily. Uh, Yuval's production is amazing. It involves a child actor, and it's, it's like a very complicated thing because of the child. Um, so uh, so this one tours very easily. We premiered the piece in a workshop version in 2008. We premiered the world premiere in 2011. Um, we did it in my New York festival in 2013. And I've been touring it ever since. And it's gone to lots of places now. So this year we're going to be here. We're going to be in Austin, Texas with it. Next year we're gonna be in Chicago, Chicago Opera Theater with it. Atlanta has done it, San Diego has done it. So it's a piece that's getting a lot of play. Yeah. David didn't know it was an opera. Um, he likes to say <laughs> that I told him it was an opera. It's basically, um, I call it a song cycle through opera, um, or opera through song cycle. Um, and you know it's set up in that sort of structure of a song cycle, but it really, and while it's not one character, it's several different characters, each character is portraying some aspect of a soldier. So it starts with a child and playing, you know, with toy guns. Then it goes to being a teenager and playing video games. Then it moves to enlisting and what that experience is. And then the sort of like high point of the piece is um, what I think foreshadows David's later writing the most Um, is this, I think it's a, I eight-minute aria that is called Two Marines. And it's a father who sees the Marines coming to his door. He knows why they're coming, which is to tell him that his son has died in war. And this is a true story, actually. This, this is a true story. Instead of opening the door, he goes out the back and pours gasoline over their car and lights it on fire. And so this is a true story that David had read about, and came into this opera. It's incredibly emotional. It's a, the dramatic structure of the aria really, like I said, foreshadows these these very long sort of Shanas that David writes in opera, and this is the first of those. Mm. Um, so one of the things I love is to like watch the genesis of a artist, of a composer, and like how they change over time, and now that David's written so many other things, you can really see, yeah, this is this was the beginning. Yeah.
1: Wow. Amazing. As we wrap up, what do you say to people who talk about the the decline of opera, who talk about the struggles of opera, who talk about audiences not as interested in opera and and you see different evidence in what your company is doing and um you know, also here with this partnership with Los Angeles Opera, what is your um, response to that kind of talk?
0: My response to that talk here in the U.S. is that's not true anymore. There's been a real incredible um, rebirth of the art form in the last, I'd say, five years, um, which has resulted in this explosion of new work that's being written. Most major companies and most small companies now are doing new work as part of what their offerings are. And they're finding that people are coming to these pieces. And actually, anecdotally, I don't have the data on it, but anecdotally, you talk to a lot of people that are saying, my La Boheme is not selling out, <laughs> but my new work is selling out. My Silent Night or whatever they're putting you know, on the main stage is a big thing. And then a lot of people are also doing smaller stage work, which is, I think, the biggest birth in the field is chamber opera. New contemporary American chamber opera has exploded in this country. Christopher Kelsch, when we did Dog Days, said that probably the most, and that was the first piece we did together, probably the most exciting thing about that was that 75% of the audience was new. And that's, I think, what new works can bring to a company. It does draw a younger audience. It does draw new people. And, you know, the way Christopher talks about it, I think, is really great, which is, one isn't better than the other and even if the person who comes to dog days never goes to the dorothy chandler to see la OM, it really doesn't matter that's not the point the point is that we're creating interest and excitement in this art form for the future which involves standard repertoire and involves new work um, and i think he articul- articulates that really beautifully and my company was not put on this planet to do repertoire What we do, and we do really well, is develop new work. And so for us, that's our whole arena. But for the larger companies that are doing repertoire and new works, they're finding this as a way to bring in new people to this art form. (laughs) ¶¶
1: That's Beth Morrison, whose company, Beth Morrison Projects, is an artistic partner with Los Angeles Opera, producing multiple shows here each season. Up next is Ellen Reed's Prism, which receives its world premiere November 29 through December 2 at Red Cat. More information is available at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll
0: see you at the opera.